read and then we'll pray and then I'll invite you to be seated. And we're going to look at Revelation chapter 4 today. Uh, it's a short chapter, so I'm going to read the, the whole thing. John the Revelator says, After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian. And around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. And around the throne are 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there's something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. And day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It is so good to be together in God's house today. My name is Chris McDaniel, and I bring you greetings from the west side. And before we preach, and toward the end of our service, we're going to honor and celebrate Sindhu's time here with us today. It's going to be her last Sunday um, here with us before she takes a brief break and then picks up really important work uh, at the cathedral in Loganville. Before I say a few things about this passage, which I'm... Um, Maybe it's my personality, but the more bizarre the passage, the more excited I get about preaching a sermon. And so I, this is weird, and so I am pumped. Um, but before I get into this, I, I just want to give you a couple of updates on what's happening on, on the north side in terms of our transition and our parish reality. Uh, Kara has stepped into an interim worship role. She led us beautifully today and will be leading us going forward. Nate continues to do a remarkable job. I meet with these two on a very regular basis as we're walking through this liminal space that is transition. But I have a really encouraging update for you. Last week, the week before and then last week, we've interviewed two of the top candidates for the job on the north side. And we feel as a leadership team, including the lay leadership team, really encouraged by where this story is going. And so I believe that in the coming weeks, we're gonna have further updates that will be very clear regarding um, even potentially job offers in the next couple of weeks. And I just feel and excited in my spirit for you all and for us. Um, we have been in a season of kind of open-handed, open-ended questioning, right? It's like, what's gonna happen? Tripp is doing really well in his basement, writing devotional content for lots and lots of people. He brings you greetings. Tripp is in a really good space right now in his job and in his life. But when Tripp stepped back, one of the things that the two of us talked about was, Lord, what are you gonna do on the north side? And there was a sense of just 
real peace that God was going to provide for you all for us. And I believe that that provision is actually coming to fruition. Um, I don't think it's without, without a sense of hope that we're going to be able to see the way forward and even be able to attach dates and names to that within the next number of weeks. And so God has been kind and he continues to be. And I would just invite you all to keep praying uh, for us as we are discerning what leadership transitions look like here on the, on the north side. But I think we've got some good information coming down the tracks. Amen. Amen. So here's why I think revelation matters for us. If you grew up in a church tradition, uh, I think some church traditions emphasize the book of Revelation to absurd degrees, claiming to understand what it all means. I would just say to you, beware of anyone who says, come to my class and I will unlock the secrets of Revelation. So some of you grew up in those churches and you thought like after the left behind novels were rammed down your throat, you thought, I think I'm good. Don't wanna hear about that anymore. If you don't know what the left behind novels are, good for you. Uh, means you missed something pretty terrible in the history of the church. And then there are other places and traditions where we don't really hear anything about the book of Revelation. We just, it's sort of the super bizarre, almost sci-fi book at the end of the Bible. So I think that's why it's important for us to be willing to open up John's apocalypse and say, Lord, what do you have for us? Let me paint some context for, for you. At the time that John wrote the book of Revelation, he was exiled and imprisoned on an island called Patmos. He had suffered remarkably for his faith. Almost all of his friends were dead. He lost all of his brothers nearly by the time he wrote the Revelation. And so I want you to just put yourself in John's position. Church history tells us that there was a moment of persecution earlier in his life where he was um, put in burning oil. And so at the time that John wrote the Revelation, his body is almost certainly covered in scars. He's probably sitting, and you can look, Google image search, Patmos, he's probably sitting in a cave, around a cave overlooking the sea, um, and he is a prisoner, and he will live there, and he will die there. Um, John has lost a lot of his friends who were martyred very early on in life, and he almost as a lone standing apostle, one of the last few people to have lived and fellowshiped and experienced friendship with Jesus, um, he looks back at the point that he writes the Revelation, and he is looking back on a life with Jesus. And he's looking back on a life lived in community that is not what it used to be. And I think it's really important for us to put ourselves in that space to understand what John is seeing here. Because what we see here is a person who has been faithful and has suffered a remarkable amount for the sake of the gospel, who has lost a lot of his contextual relationships. Peter is gone. Andrew is gone. His own brother has lost his life. This is a man who has lost so much and loved Jesus and remained faithful to him until what is close to the end of his life. And here he is in prison and Jesus appears to him. And as we sit here coming out of a global pandemic and for, for you, I don't really care how you feel about the pandemic. It has affected every single one of us in remarkably upheaving ways. We've lost a lot of relational connectivity. 
We've lost a lot of the normalcy of life. And yet for John to see Jesus come to him in that space of disorientation and say, I'm gonna show you some things that are gonna help you finish well, I believe that the Lord wants to say the same kinds of things to you and me. See, it's in the, the fourth quarter it's at the end of a thing before a new thing emerges that we oftentimes are, are compelled or tempted to just sort of throw our hands up in the air and say, yeah, whatever, it is what it is. And so Jesus appears to John and he shows him a number of things that I think are really, really important. And I'm just gonna share a few things with you today because I think you need to see this and hear this from the Lord because God is actually probably wanting to say similar stuff to you and me that he was wanting to say to John the Revelator. The first thing that John sees in this vision is this, a throne with one seated on a throne. He has his eyes opened, he is in prison, he is in isolation and his eyes are open and he sees a throne and one seated on a throne. And whenever you read seated, in the Bible, specifically pertaining to thrones, the word seated speaks in the Jewish tradition and in many traditions of a settled place of authority. What John sees in a, in a, in a place of remarkable disorientation is the settled authority of God. Now his circumstance has not changed. He's still got scars on his body. He's still in isolation. He's still lost most of his friendships, all of his friendships. And yet God gives him a glimpse and says, all of that disorientation, John, is real, but I am in a settled place of authority and you can trust me. And I believe that God in his wisdom looks at you and me when we're in seasons of remarkable disorientation and he says, I am seated in a settled place of authority. When you sit down in the Bible, it means you do not have more work to do. It means you have finished or accomplished what you have set out to do. So when we see God seated on a throne, what we see is that God is saying to John and to you and me, I have finished what I've set out to do. I am in a settled place of authority. There is no dispute over my authority. So I just wanna ask you this question. What does it look like for you to look at your life and all the uncertainty there and then to look at God and see that God would say to you, I'm in a settled place. I believe that what the Lord was extending to John in terms of an invitation was for him to be able to settle into his circumstance and say, okay, Lord, I can trust you because you are settled, I can be settled. Because you are in authority and in control, because you're powerful, I can rest. And I believe he wants to say the same thing to us. Your circumstances are always moving, but God is not in an upheaved place. That's the first thing that he says to John. The second thing I think that we need to see as we look at this, and this is where our brains become distracted, is that a lot is happening around this throne. God is seated on a throne, and there's all kinds of stuff happening around the throne. And this is where Christians get distracted. We think, oh, what does Jasper and Cornelian, what does that mean? And how could we understand these peals of, of lightning and thunder? Be before we analyze the furniture of heaven, I just want to say to you, the furniture of heaven is pretty interesting. There's a lot happening around the throne. 
There are a lot of statements in John's revelation that say it looked like or it looks like, which means that John is struggling to get sort of precise language around what he's seeing. He's seeing colors and he's hearing sounds and he's experiencing things that look like seas of glass, but it's not quite that. It's like John's mind is beginning to be expanded right now because what he's seeing is essentially this. Whatever it is that's going on around God in this moment is better than you can put language to. That's what God wants us to see. Now for John, that was really important because when he opened his own eyes, he saw scars on his body. He saw the absence of community. And so when he looked through the eyes of God, he saw that there was something going on in God's world that actually put his world into a proper context. And I'm gonna tell you, this is why Christians are called by God to look to him rather than simply just to look to our circumstances because there's something going on in God's world that's meant to say something to you about your world. So there's a lot going on. And I'm just gonna tell you this. I love church, but this, what we're doing right now, is not a great analogy for what's going to be going on around God's throne and what is currently going on around God's throne. And we can say that without throwing church under the bus. I remember as a kid thinking, if heaven is like an endless church service, do I want to go there? And you know, like good Christians are like, oh yes, I, I yes, I, I mean, it's a, it was a real struggle for me to put this on this morning. I mean, I, um, you know, I still, like my act of rebellion, right, is to roll up my sleeves and wear like comfortable shoes because there's something about what we see when we see heaven and we think endless church service. And I just wanna say to you that if you were to have your eyes open to see what was going on in God's world right now, it would not be a sedate or relatively sedate gathering of Christians. Um, I remember being handed a live chicken at a church service in Africa. And I mean, literally someone brought a chicken as an offering and, um, and the pastor received it. And then the pastor in his genius looked at me and thought, I'm going to give the chicken to that guy, um, so that he can hold it for the next two and a half hours while we're in church. That's probably more like heaven. Uh, than what we tend to do in America. Because I was on the edge of my seat for two and a half hours. I was thinking, what's gonna happen? Is it gonna bite me? Um, we don't have lots of living creatures in our church services, and yet heaven apparently full of living creatures. I, I say this to you not to be technical. I say this to you to say there's a lot going on in God's economy that we do not account for. And I believe that there's going to be a lot that is going to occupy our imaginations for all of eternity. And we're called as Christians to begin to peek into that and lean toward that even now as we live in the shadowlands. It's not boring. It's just not. Two ideas that I wanna unpack for you. We're, we're told by John that there's a lot happening around the throne and then that there's a lot coming from the throne. And I believe that those two images are really important. What's happening around the throne? 24 elders, uh, there's beauty and there's community around the throne. God is not lonely. 
And God is not just not lonely because he exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. God is not lonely because in this beautiful, mysterious way, there are these 24 elders around the throne who are always singing and always doing things with him. So I just wanna say, when you think about God, when you pray to God, I want you to think about and pray to one who is existing in robust community. But, but maybe more importantly, and this is what animates my heart the most, there's a lot moving from the throne. And, and I just wanna say this to you. I think this is a, a particularly Easter kind of thing to think through. Is God just wanting us to think about things? Or is God also wanting to move things from his heart toward us? So when we hear in the Revelation, the apocalypse of St. John, that thunder and lightning and peals of thunder are coming from the throne, I believe that God wants you and me to have an imagination for the fact that God wants to move things from his heart toward you and your heart. And you're meant to be impacted by that. Jamie Smith, one of my favorite Christian philosophers and thinkers, he says this in his book, You Are What You Love. He says, we are not primarily thinking things. Jews, specifically the tradition from which we derive our faith, are not primarily thinking people, they're gut people. And therefore, Semitic religion, which Christianity is a Semitic religion, it's, I would argue, like this may blow your mind, but Jesus was not white and certainly not Western. So the Jews and Semitic religions um, live from their guts more than their brains. And that's not anti-intellectualism. I, I possess a doctoral degree. I like to think, but I'm not primarily a thinking thing. And when we're told that stuff is coming from the throne, I think that meant that means that as we live our lives faithfully before God, we're meant to experience things from the heart of God. We're meant to feel things and receive things that come from him. So as you pray, I believe the Lord doesn't just want to animate your head. He wants to go through your head into your heart and into the deep places of your being. And for those of you who have children, I will say um, that vision of faith is gonna be more compelling to your children than just getting all the rules right. Because it's that that will keep you when all hell is breaking loose. It's that that will see you through crisis and liminality. We have to have our whole person engaged. So around the throne and from the throne. And I think that during Easter, we're meant to actually grab onto that. I think we're meant to say, Lord, what does it look like for me to experience things in your heart, to find the experience of power and insight and hope and joy actually growing inside me so that I live out of a settled place of the grace of God that's, that's been given to me as a gift. God wants to give you gifts. He wants to animate and open up your heart, your mind. Two more things. Apparently singing is the work of heaven. And I, um, I'm a terrible singer, unlike Sindhu and Kara. Um, I, I sit at the front because I don't wanna distract people standing directly in front of me and I trust that singers in the front are capable enough to hear me and be okay with it. Um, because otherwise I would not sing loudly. Uh, I, I take the, the words of, um, of the scripture that say, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I take that quite literally as a Christian because I feel like when I sing, it is more noise than it is beautiful. And yet what we see here is that our singing is actually really important in terms of 
um, leavening the atmosphere of heaven. Marty, our, our worship pastor on the west side, says this beautifully. He says, when we sing holy, 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 and we will in a moment, we're actually truly joining with the song of heaven. We're, we're tapping into something that's actually really powerful. And what I would say about singing that's so important is that your voice and these voices are meant to come together. It's not just about the, the, you know, the beautiful singers. It's about the beautiful singers leading the terrible singers and beautiful singers into something that is bigger. And so I just want to issue a, an emphatic challenge to you. If, if you don't sing during church, I would just humbly say that it's probably time for you to get over yourself um, and maybe even repent. And I don't mean that in a like a wag my finger at you sort of way. Um, the word repent means metanoia. It means to think about your thinking. It means to rethink things. And if we come to church to listen and then think about a sermon, I would just argue we're not actually participating in the economy of heaven to the extent that God wants us to. So start making noise. Sing. Um, I believe singing is the work of heaven, and I believe it's something that we're meant to start participating with right now. And worship, to be clear, is what we do when we gather. It's not the warm-up for the sermon. Uh, and if you grew up in the evangelical church, you how was worship? And what they mean was, like, did Sindhu sing the song like we wanted her to sing it, or did Kara? Worship means to ascribe worth, and that's what we do the whole time and hopefully with our whole lives. But singing is a part of it. Here's the last thing I want to say. The elders, these mysterious 24, when they sing, they cast their crowns down. Um, they, they take off that which has value and worth and honor and dignity, and they put it on, on the ground. And I want to say this to you before we um, bless Sindhu and then come to the communion table together. Um, you have received stuff of worth, your gifting, your reputation, your status and authority. These things are a gift to you, not unlike a crown. And it does us no good to pretend like we don't possess gifts and that we do not have reputation and we do not have influence and authority. We're meant to possess those like we would a crown. And so I would say to you, where, where is and what does your crown look like? What has God endowed you with? What has he given you? What has he gifted to you? And some of you grew up in a church tradition where it's really hard for you to even think that way because you think, oh, that's pride. Um, you cannot cast a crown down unless you possess it. And the Lord wants us to have an accurate estimation of who we are, of our gifting and our value and our worth. And don't all shucks your way through life. It's not helpful to God and it's frankly not intellectually honest. The Lord is not weird about your gifting. He gave you gifts. Imagine your beloved giving you a gift and then you pretending that you did not possess the gift because you wanted to be humble. It would be disorienting and confusing and frankly immature. Know what, you're, what you bring, know what you've been given and then take it off and put it before God. And the picture that we have in heaven is not that they have a crown and then they just throw it away. It's that they take the crown and in worship, they take the crown off. And then when they go back into their seated space, they put the crown on and then they take it off. They don't separate themselves from their gifting. They know when to lay it down and when to pick it up. And if we're going to be an Easter people, we need to know when to hold on to and honor and acknowledge our gifting and our influence and then when to put it down. That's actually the job of the mature Christian. It's to know what season you're in, what moment you're in. 
So there's a lot going on in Revelation. And I pray that over this Easter season, you would continue to think and look and pray and ask real thoughts about what it means for you and me to participate as Easter people. Sindhu, I'm gonna make you feel a little uncomfortable now, and I hope that's okay. This woman has been um, a part of our church, not just since the Northside's inception, but far before that. Um, I knew Sindhu and Neil before I knew that I knew Sindhu and Neil. They were like essentially kids coming up in our church, and they were a part of our church um, in, in a season when, gosh, I mean, you were probably like almost a, just a very young adult, if not almost just recently a teenager in some respects. And so we have walked with this woman for a really long time. Early on when, when Tripp's transition came, uh, became apparent to, to Sindhu and to all of us, um, that transition actually, uh, through no choice of her own, really invited, I think, and required stuff of Sindhu. She had to think through, if I feel called to be a pastor and to grow in pastoral ministry, and this is so uncertain, what does that mean for me? And I just wanna say in front of all of you, that the way that Sindhu has navigated all of this liminality has been not only honoring, but deeply mature uh, and deeply reflective and thoughtful. And I just wanna honor you in front of this assembled group of people and those who are watching online. When Sindhu came to me and said, they've offered me a job at the cathedral, um, my heart felt two things at the precise same moment, a, a sense of grateful, uh, thankful, um, full heart that God was providing for Sindhu and Neil in this way. I, I knew in my heart that he would because of her talent and her gifting. And so I'm thankful for that. The scope of that job will be greater than what she was able to do here, just do limited resources. But at the same time, a feeling of sadness that we would be um, releasing and blessing and saying goodbye to someone who has been integral and, and has been foundational, frankly, to this work. And so, Sindhu, I, I just want to say to you that um, finishing well and leaving well um, is really hard work, and you have, you have done that. And I would love, if it's possible, to, for, for Nate and I to pray for you. Um, I have a gift that um, is just a card signed by people on our staff team, and there may be some, some additional um, things signed. I have a gift from us on, on staff that I just wanna give to you to, to say as a very small way, thank you um, and bless you, and that we're really and truly excited about what God has for you. So if you could, would you come up here so that Nate and I could pray? Father, we place our hand of blessing on this woman. And we know, Lord, enough to know that this is super complicated, God. I, I know it is for me, and so I can only imagine, Lord, what Sindhu and Neil and their family are feeling as they are seeing a season end and beginning to welcome a new one, a new season, a season with lots of unknowns. And so, Lord, what we do here on the north side is we place our small but joyful yes behind your really big and godlike, powerful yes. And we say, God, bless this woman. Thank you for her leadership. Thank you for her service. 
Thank you, God, for what she and Neil have poured into this place. And we pray that you would come and give them the sense that they have walked a process of transition and they've done it well. They've done it wisely. And we pray, God, that you would give her a sense of rest, a sense of fulfillment as she prepares to step into what you have next. We bless her now. And we thank you for her. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We love you, lady. Bless you.